Welcome, everybody, to SCI's First for Hunters podcast. I'm your host, Ben Cassidy, Executive Vice President for International Government and Public Affairs at Safari Club International. Doesn't matter where you hunt, what you hunt, or how you hunt, you've come to the right place if you're a hunter. This podcast will give you the latest breaking news on what's happening and what you can do about it to protect your freedom to hunt. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the First for Hunters podcast. I'm your host, Ben Cassidy with Safari Club International. Back in the United States after our last shows were over in Europe, and I couldn't be in a better, more welcoming place. I mean, okay, look, I'm on Capitol Hill, not the most welcoming place, but this office is like a complete embassy for all sports, hunters, anglers, everything. Right now, I'm looking at some of the most impressive trophies. If you're listening and you can't see it, if you're, if you're, if you're watching, you see this giant female cobia. Might be the biggest one you're ever going to see. We're going to get the story. We're going to get the story. But just looking all around this room, incredible. Um, and I feel at home. You know, I spend a lot of time uh, in the Chesapeake. Uh, yes. On the Maryland side of things. Yeah. But, you know, it's all one happy place. Yes. So I thought I would have to wait for Memorial Day weekend to have this kind of experience <laughs> or hope for this kind of experience. But here we are on Capitol Hill with our great esteemed guest, champion for sportsmen on the Hill. Congressman Rob Whitman of Virginia's First District. Thank you, sir, for being here. Ben, it's great to be with you, and thanks so much for all Safari Club International does for the purpose of protecting our our hunting rights and, for that matter, our angling rights too, sir. It is our pleasure every day, and it's folks like you that make it easier easy for us to do because we have hope, you know, because you are our voice on on the hill and and get the message across. You know, last uh, or I guess it was a couple weeks ago now we had our our, our, our DC fly-in. Yes. And it's the first one that we've had in, you know, in a couple of years. So it's incredible to have everybody back on the Hill really just, you know, shouting out, you know, what sportsmen, you know, are hoping for and, and, and fighting for. Um, and that list is all of our folks know, because our list came from, you know, our, our members uh, and our advocates, you know, it's all around access, good science, all those pieces. And really look forward to getting into that. But first, you know, I wanted to ask you, Congressman, just to introduce yourself a little bit to, to sure. our audience. Sure. Well, I represent what we call America's First District, which is the first district in Virginia and includes Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown. Has incredibly rich areas for hunting and fishing. I grew up hunting and fishing in the northern neck and middle peninsula. Just one of the best places anywhere on the face of the earth, if you like, all the different outdoor sports. So, real honor to represent that area. This is my... Uh, eighth full term in Congress. So we are uh, honored to be here and we are anxious to be able to get some things done. Obviously, there's some challenges to all of us that love the uh, uh, the outdoor sports, but very specifically hunting and fishing. Some of the things that are going on with the Biden administration. So we're all in to make sure we protect those opportunities that we have and make sure, as you said, that it's all about access, protecting access for hunters and fishermen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so Going to your district, you know, I'm looking around here. I see some of the most incredible trophies out there. Are they all from the district? I know the answer, but so, some <laughs> of them are. We have a um, a big uh, striped bass up there. We call them rockfish. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a 52 pounder. So that was actually caught there in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, the bluefish there, that's a uh, 18 pound bluefish caught in the bay back in the day. I actually worked on a charter boat back in the day when we would catch these big bluefish uh, with with regularity through the summertime when they're in the bay. A big gray trout, that's a 35-inch gray trout, almost 15 pounds. They're just not around like that today. We don't see them in the bay like that anymore. 
Uh, and then some speckled trout, those two speckled trout were from the bay. That's a 13 pound, eight ounce speckled trout. And the next and the one next to it is nine pounds, 11 ounces. So both of those came from the Chesapeake Bay. So very blessed. The freshwater fish here, the largemouth bass all came from right there in the northern neck. The same with the crappie and the yellow perch came from the Mattapani River and the little white perch and bluegill there. The bluegill actually came from uh, a, a, a pond at Stratford Hall. It's a mill pond there. Uh, the Lee family uh, 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 mansion there and the mill pond itself is now almost 300 years old. So wow. it's incredible. And they run it twice a year to actually grind corn and flour. And you can buy the cornmeal and the wheat flour that was ground there at the mill. The mill still works there at the store at Stratford Hall. That's awesome. Isn't that great? So good. Um, over here, yes. tarpon. I've got a lot of tarpon friends. Yes. They call themselves hunters. You're spotting, stalking, right? It, it, it's a hunt. So it is. Give me some of this this context on this tarpon. I mean, we'll we'll get some photos, right, and share them because yes. you got to see this thing. This is a a, a beast. Well, it's a lot. it's it's a it's a 80, 81 inch tarpon taped out at one hundred and eighty pounds. We caught it in Boca Grande and didn't catch it in Boca Grande Pass. Actually, caught it out on the beach, and I've got some great video. We were out there one morning, believe it or not, by ourselves a school of probably 200 tarpon just rolling, coming right to us. So as you know, take a little crab, hook it on. We cast out in front of the school. And that day was phenomenal. Best day ever. We caught and released 20 tarpon that day. <laughs> literally sun up to sundown. And that was the biggest of, of the bunch right there. So in, incredible. So to be able to have that. And we didn't have to deal with sharks. As you know, hammerheads there and bull sharks. Yeah, are for sure. Deal. We've had to deal with them before. And didn't have to deal with a whole lot of anglers. This big school of tarpon came out of the inlet in the morning. We had it essentially by ourselves for about two hours and then some other boats found it. The school started to split up and we would just follow the smaller groups of fish and they were they were in a really active feeding mode. You know, sometimes when they're rolling, they're just like, well, we don't want to eat. Yep. It was incredible. And we found them the entire day. We used every crab we had. We went out and, and uh, used some sabiki rigs and caught some what we call hairbacks with a little greenback herring. We used them. It was just everything was worth it. Everything <laughs> was worth it. It was one of those days that you just put in your memory banks and luckily we yeah. caught some video. I had a GoPro, I put it on my on, oh, my, cool. on my hat and had a lot of GoPro footage. So that was great. Did they did they daisy chain? Did you see that? Well, actually, you know, we didn't have any daisy chaining them. Usually when they're daisy chaining, you know, they, they're in that kind of spawning mindset. They're a lot more difficult uh -huh. to catch. These fish were just rolling as a school together, sort of, uh, you know, not in a chain, but parallel, parallel to each other. And they were absolutely in the feeding mood. That's awesome. Yeah. What a day to remember. What a trophy to remember. But yes. um, let's talk a little bit about, about hunting. So yes. some people say from the Northern Neck that it's the turkey capital of Virginia, of the world, most by acre. I don't know. It, it's an incredible place. I uh, had a place across the street from me that a farm that I used to own, a friend of mine now owns it and uh, go turkey hunting there all the time. Literally, when I get up in the morning to come into D.C., you know, if, if I can get away, um, uh, usually around 5.30 or so, when I wake up, and I got woods right, right, right out the back, back door. Access. I, I hear, hear, <laughs> hear, hear the turkeys gobbling. We are blessed to have an incredible, uh, rich turkey population there. So a lot of turkeys there, and, and we, we, we take advantage of that. That's wonderful. How did the season go for you? Did you have a chance to get out? Actually, for me, this was a crazy season. It was the first time in about two dozen years that I did not get a chance to get out. The, the schedule up here and yeah. all the things that we were doing was just incredibly crazy. And the mornings that I did have a chance to get out, 
the conditions were not good, high winds and those sorts of things. And you know those mornings, listen, you can kill a turkey under those conditions, but you know that you just gotta go to places where you know the turkeys are. Um, I didn't have enough time to really do a lot of scouting. So, uh, and I was on a tight time frame, so I had to get back to the house by eight o'clock. And if you're gonna hunt on a windy morning, you really have to be willing to put the time in. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I think you've got a week left in Maine, so if you just sort out this whole debt ceiling thing. That's right. We could do that. We could do that. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm seeing over here, too, though, all the waterfowl, all the yes. ducks. So is that a big passion of yours as well? It is. I love waterfowl hunting. I'm a deer hunter, too. You see some deer out there in the in the, in the the Maine foyer coming in. I love waterfowl hunting. I think it's uh, it's, you know, it's about the experience. Obviously, there's camaraderie with folks that you're in the blind with. There's also a high level of skill to it. It's calling the ducks in, it's getting the decoy set right. To me, the most satisfying part of hunting for waterfowl is not necessarily the shooting, but it's fooling those waterfowl, getting them to do what we call finishing. Yep. Getting them to set their, their landing gear down, come into the decoys, and they are committed. So that's when you know oh, that wow. you've completely fooled them. The same with geese. That to me is the most fulfilling part. Listen, I've I've had a great privilege through the years living where, where we live to, to have an opportunity to harvest a lot of ducks and, and geese. And listen, if I never shoot another one, uh, that's fine with me. But what really drives me is, is taking my grandchildren out, taking their friends out, taking young folks out to really turn them on to the outdoor experience. And, and once they go out and experience that, it is addictive. And I oh, tell yeah. folks, you know, all the, all the other temptations they have in today's society, the most productive opportunity that I think our young folks have is to enjoy the outdoors, whether it's the, the, the hunting sports, the shooting sports, the, the you know, fishing, angling, whatever, whatever, however you want to term it. That's an incredible experience. And what I find is in the vast majority of instances, when young people have that experience, they gravitate right back to it. Absolutely. And is it really like a certain age, you know, that you need to get kids out by, you know, for it to really hook in? I mean, any, I mean, some people start late, some people start young, some people say, you know, Kids got to fish before they're five. No, listen, I think I, the, here's the key. I think you want to get them out when they understand what the experience is about. So I think five or six is a good place to start. I think the key effort in taking a young person out hunting and fishing is to make sure that you don't force them to stay when things aren't going on and their attention goes elsewhere because you want them to have a positive experience. Yep. So when their when their attention span is done and you know that pretty quickly, it's like, okay, thanks, let's let, let's head on. So, you know, action is good for them. Sometimes the fish aren't biting, sometimes the birds aren't flying, sometimes they don't just don't see things. You have to be very willing to to end the trip. It can't be out there for yourself. You can't say, I'm gonna stay here until yep. we catch a fish. You know, it has to be if we're not catching them now, if we're not catching them in the first half an hour or so. Uh, 45 minutes or so, it's time to pack it up and leave and come back at another time. That I think is the biggest mistake that folks make is, is expecting a young person that hasn't had that experience to, to endure through what becomes for them a boring experience. And many times they're like, I'm not going fishing again or hunting again because yep. it was boring the last time I went. No, that's great advice. You know, I've got uh, all my, my nieces and nephews coming in town for Memorial Day. And one thing I always love, we, we go out to Tillman Island in Maryland, Eastern Shore. Um, and when we get there, it's like Tillman time. Yes. Tillman time is like a, it's a lifestyle, yes. but it also includes not having iPads or, you know, TVs or phones. Right. And a lot of the, you know, the nieces and nephews kind of get a little grumpy about it. But the first thing that I always do with them is I take them out to the big dock and you've got a photo of a dock over here with the blue crab. Yes. And that's what we do is we yes. put out the chicken necks. That's right. We start pulling them in and yeah. they become obsessed. Oh, it goes from like fun to catch them, watching them dance, running away from them. 
to like scheming, like how do we start our own crab shack? That's how do we right. make a restaurant? Yeah, yeah. That's it. Well, you see, those are my two grandsons. Oh, I love it. And, and they're there on the fishing pier. Yeah. So we were just catching a bunch of different things. They had a ball. And of course, at that point too, at some point they said, hey, we're done. So as soon as they're done, totally. I can pack it up and, and, and head on. But, no, it's, but, it, but it's, a, it's, it's a great experience for, for young folks today, especially with you know the richness of our outdoors. And what I find is that if you get them connected as sportsmen, then they also are interested in protecting the resource. So there's a dual utility out of turning them on to this when they're young. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, back on to, so waterfowl hunting, <clears throat> going out fishing. You know, so waterfowl hunting, it's, it's, been, it's been law of the land, right? With migratory birds yeah. for forever, um, not using lead. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Right now, we're starting to see, you know, this administration do all, I'm going to call them bans. I mean, they call them a phase out. It, it's banned. It's shutting yes, it down. Yes. Um, we're already participating and following the laws with waterfowl. But what are they trying to do beyond just waterfowl? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really perplexing because the effort to ban lead for waterfowl hunting had direct scientific evidence to show okay. that ducks were ingesting lead shot. It was affecting them. And you would expect that. You're shooting waterfowl in areas, lead's going down. These are ducks that feed on the on the vegetation. They feed on the things that are on the bottom. So they pick up some lead shot. We know what happens. Then the science board that out through the years, they looked at what was happening to duck populations. What's happening now, though, is this administration, at the direction, I believe, of the Center for Biological Diversity, and others are saying, hey, we're just gonna go out and, and outright ban lead. As you said, they say that it's not, but it is. There were two petitions filed with the Environmental Protection Agency that asked for lead to be banned for recreational purposes, bullets, fishing sinkers, and twice the EPA said, no, we're not gonna ban it. Mm -hmm. And remember, they make an evaluation about the impact <clears throat> on the health of both animals and humans. So they said, no. Now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service comes back and says, we wanna ban it. And they point to a few isolated incidents where birds are ingesting lead from eating carrion and, and other things that did have an effect on their health. And what we're saying is pretty simple. Uh, HR 615, the bill that I put in, which is protecting access for hunters and fishermen, says this, let's use science to make that decision. Let's not do an across the nation ban on lead. If there are issues where lead is making its way into a wildlife population and causing ill effects there, by all means, let's look at those areas in, in limiting or stopping the use of lead in certain instances. But what they want is a carte blanche banning. They also too have not taken into, I think the proper context, all the comments they've got to say, hey, please don't do this. Uh, I, don't, I don't have an issue if they say, there's an effect here on this population of birds or in this situation of saying the science says in this area, we need to limit the use of lead ammunition or lead fishing sinkers, but carte blanche is going to have an, uh, an impact on access for fishermen. When you're requiring somebody to go from lead, which has a specific role because of its weight and its utility and say, no, you have to use some other metal or some other compound to take your bait to the bottom, to fire a bullet that has the same sort of effect, all of a sudden, you're talking about compounds like tungsten, yep. which are prohibitively expensive. So all of a sudden, somebody says, well, hey, I'm not going to hunt because I can't afford, you know, a, a box of bullets that instead of now costing me 20 bucks, now cost me 120 bucks. 
or go out and buying a handful of fishing sinkers that now cost me a dollar a piece, now costing me $6 a piece. So it's, it's those sorts of things that do have an impact on access. So what we're saying is just base it on science. If, there's a, if, you, if you can show that there's an impact on wildlife populations, then use it in that area and listen to states and listen to folks that are most affected by this. And I asked the agency to say, give me an example where you actually made a change to a regulation based on feedback from a state. And one of the examples they gave was West Virginia that said, by the way, uh, your ban here on bullets is gonna have an impact. And they backed away from their ban mm -hmm. in West Virginia. So why would you do the same on doing this nationwide? So they, they, they've already said the precedent, just follow the science. Yeah, 100%. I think you did a tremendous job, too, uh, during the hearing. What was it? A couple of weeks back, you know, outlining all of this. And I, I like that you pointed out with, you know, sinkers, you know, condors don't die. That's right. right. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. They're not going to go 100 feet down to, to, to just nibble on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also just, yeah, on the, the critical mineral side of things, right? Your tungstens and all that. It's like great for fighter jets. Maybe yeah. not for, for what we're for fishing sake. No. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah. Um, what, what did I have on my mind? I was going to point out, you know, on on the science side of things, mm -hmm. we saw the last hunt fish rule come out uh, last year with the phase outs. And I think, you know, during that hearing too, one, one of the witnesses, um, he did a really great job of pointing out um, some of the, the missing science in these decisions yes. being made. And I was thinking like through that Pataka River, right, mm -hmm. in uh, yes. Indiana. And the environmental assessment, I just want to read some of it. Like sure, the environmental absolutely. assessment, you know, that's conducted by the Fish and Wildlife Service mm -hmm. when they're saying why they're proposing the, these new rules, these new regs. Um, they're pointing out in this that they use the phrase best available science. Right. But then when you look at the actual environmental assessment, which, which we have, um, they have all of this info that just undermines best available science. It's not best available right. science. Because the science that they have is saying things like, no documented wildlife or aquatic species deaths have been associated with lead poisoning on the refuge over the last 20 years. Yes. It goes on to say there have been no reports of wildlife that have been impacted by lead poisoning on the refuge for at least the last 20 years or longer based on staff experience and records. And then, so with Pataka, it's, um, it's, a, it's a phase out, right? Yes. So when they're talking about the gap between the final rule and 2026 when the phase out would take place, um, until such time that the restrictions take place, added lead to the environment from the fishing and hunting activities is not expected to cause more than negligible impact to wildlife and aquatic species. Mm -hmm. Is this any of this just beg the question then why are you even doing it? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, thank you for HR 615. Exactly. I mean, well, if you look at the scientific body of knowledge, it doesn't lead you to a nationwide ban on lead. Are there some isolated incidents where we see impacts Sure. things like condor populations? Yep. Absolutely. So in those situations, define how the lead's making its way into having an effect on the animal population, and then look at ways where we can stop that. That's, be that's best available science. In this situation, it's not best available science. And best available science, too, is, I think, a way for them to say, we're going to cherry pick the science that we want. Because... What it needs to be saying is the scientific body of knowledge, which means all the science, not best available. So yep. best available can be a very subjective term. It's kind of become like a, a shortcut, shortcut to getting what you want, yeah. right? It's it's just, it, should, it should say based upon the scientific body of knowledge. And being a biologist myself, there is a big difference between uh, best available science, which is subjective, 
to scientific body of knowledge, which is everything. So look at everything. And that's what our bill says. Look at everything before you go down the road of this carte blanche across the nation ban on lead for fishing and hunting. Awesome. No, that's the way to shore it up. And we really appreciate, you know, all your leadership on it. Um, and you just know that you've got a cavalry behind you, Safari you. Club. Um, it's, it's top of mind, um, the entire fight, you know, across the board, we're leading that, that fight on, on no net loss of access. Yes. Um, we always point out, our members are all well aware, you know, there's physical access. You know, mm -hmm. Can I actually go there? There's right. economic access. You know, it comes in many different forms. Um, and this has just been a huge threat. I know we'll be seeing another hunt fish rule here pretty soon. Yes. Normally we see it like in June and anticipate we're going to probably see, they, they, they like what they're doing here, probably right. see a little bit more of it. Yes. Um, hopefully it's not in any of our backyards, but just know we're going to be fighting it. And uh, I would ask you, you know, any advice, you know, from hunters, you know, we all care. We want to be involved. We want to protect this for the next generation. Any advice for, for what we can be doing to be engaged? Absolutely. I would encourage anybody, anybody that is even tangentially interested in hunting and fishing to become involved. Because here's what happens. The folks that want to put these prohibitions on things that are important to enjoy the sports, the ones that want to put those prohibitions in uh, are very focused and they are relentless. And they take for granted that the folks that enjoy this access are not going to stand up and be counted. So they look at it and go, hey, we just get our foot in the door. If we just start these bands, then it'll keep rolling. Yep. And then before you know it, it's death by a thousand cuts. Somebody's going to wake up one morning and go, gosh, I enjoyed doing these things. And now it's prohibited for me to do that from a cost standpoint or from access standpoint. We have to, in every situation, speak out against this. And the most effective way to do that is not to just say, hey, I don't like this and talk to your friends that are hunters and, and fishermen but talk to your elected officials and talk to them at every level because we see these things not only going on at the federal level, mm -hmm. we see some of them going on at the state level. And for that matter, even at the local level, you have to speak out and you have to find friends and others that are willing to go with you. So whether it's a post on a Facebook page, whether it's attending a public hearing, whether it's putting a comment in when they advertise these regulations and say, hey, public comment, make sure that you comment and don't just comment on what you don't like about it, but make sure in your comment, you put in there what you expect the outcome of this rulemaking process to be. Don't just say, well, I don't like this. Say, we don't, we believe that this regulation should not be adopted mm -hmm. or that you need to make this change the regulation. So be very specific as to your ask and make sure to you get friends and, and others to say those things. When you do that, that assures that they get a large number of, of not just comments. Remember, under the law, they're required to respond back to the comments. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to just say, well, thank you for that comment. You know, we've taken that under consideration. It's more difficult for them when you say, don't go forward with the regulation or make this change in the regulation in order to make sure that it's fair because then their level of having to respond is a much different level. And then you can point to it. If they don't respond to that, under the law, they're supposed to. If they don't, then at least it gives all of us, legislators and the public, place to point to and said, well, you never address what the alternative is to your rule or suggesting not to adopt the rule or suggesting that you make a change to that. So make sure there's a specific ask to what you do in addition to saying what you don't like. That's how you can be most effective. That's great advice. Um, thank you for that, especially ahead of, you know, what we'll see as another proposed rule coming out. Yes. So 
I know just look, yeah, looking forward to reviewing it. And I know our members are too and, and giving our, our opinions on it. Um, I do want to just say thanks again, you know, for taking the time today sure. uh, to meet with us. It's right. always great to visit. Uh, before we do part ways though, I have to ask, you know, I always ask everyone that comes on what you want your hunting legacy to be. I mean, you've lived it and you loved it your whole life, mm -hmm. the outdoor lifestyle. You've got the voice, you've got the drive. What do you want the legacy to be? Listen, I want my legacy to be this. I want my legacy to be my son telling the stories of how both he and I went hunting and fishing. And I want that legacy to be his sons telling the story about they went fishing and hunting with their father, my son, and their grandfather. That's what I want my legacy to be. That is all you've got to say. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Congressman. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Keep up the good fight. Know that we've got your back. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. Absolutely.